land because it could save someone's life in here. But the first two riddles are pretty lighthearted. All right, listen closely. A man on horseback went on a two-day trip. He left on Tuesday and arrived home on Tuesday. How could this be? Yes. Good job, Carl. I've got one more, a little more serious. A young man entered a bar and asked for a glass of water. The bartender then pointed a gun at the man who asked for the glass of water. The man then replied, thank you, and walked off. Why is this? Carl? (laughs) The man had the hiccups. All right. Second Chronicles chapter 14, please turn to it. Second Chronicles chapter 14. All right, I'm going to start reading 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 2. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God, for he removed the altars of the foreign gods and the high places, and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdoms, and the kingdom was quiet under him. And he built fortified cities under Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years, because the Lord had given him rest. Therefore he said to Judah, Let us build these cities and make the walls around them, towers, gates, and bars, while the land is yet before us, Because we have sought the Lord our God, we have sought him, and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered, and Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, who carried shields and spears, and from Benjamin, 280,000 men who carried shields and drew bows. And these were mighty men of valor. Then Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. And he came to Merishah. So Asa went out against him. And they set the troops in battle array in the valley of Zephathah at Merishah. And Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help us, whether with many or with those who have no power, help us, O Lord our God. 
for we rest on you. And in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let men prevail against you. So the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them to Gerar. So the Ethiopians were overthrown, and they could not recover, for they were broken before the Lord and his army. And they carried away very much spoil. Then they defeated all the cities around Gerar, for the fear of the Lord came upon them. And they plundered all the cities, for there was exceedingly much spoil in them. They also attacked livestock enclosures and carried off sheep and camels in abundance and returned to Jerusalem. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. By you, But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. And in those times there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in, but great turmoil was on the inhabitants of the land. So nation was destroyed by nation, and city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. But you, be strong, and do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. Let's pray again. Dear Lord, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for this, this story of victory that Asa has. Thank you for, for servants like Asa who are not afraid to stand up for what is right. And uh, just help us to learn from him. Help us to remember that we have kingdom authority from you. Um, and, and that no one is as powerful as you. And in the end, we know that you are the victor. And that nothing on this earth matters more than you and your son, Jesus Christ. So guide us today in your word. And help us to apply your word to our lives. Give me gumption and stir up the Holy Spirit inside of me. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So how many of you here like football? Raise your hands. Okay, there's a lot of you. So good. Those of you who like football know that when there is a football game, there are three teams that take the field. There's the home team. For us, unfortunately, that is the Cleveland Browns. And then there is a visiting team, which means for roughly three and a half hours, there is going to be non-negotiable conflict. This occurs because both teams automatically go, automatic, automatically are going to be at odds with each other because they are headed in two different directions. There's a goal line here and there's a goal line there. And their job is to interfere with each other's progress. Nothing you do will stop this war. It's the nature of the field on which they've gathered. But in the midst of the two teams, there's inserted a third team. This 
is the team of officials. Made up of nine individuals whose job is to be on the field, but not of the field. Their role is to be in the middle of conflict without being a part of the conflict. They have been deputized by the commission of Roger Goodell in New York to represent the kingdom up there and the chaos down on the field. And while they will not stop the conflict, they are to make it manageable by their mere presence. Each one of these officials has been given a book. This book, coming from the offices in New York, given to every official on the field. It's designed to give them the governing guidelines by which all decisions are to be made on the field of play. Each official understands that his or her personal opinion must be subject to that book. They understand that this will not be a popularity contest because sometimes they knew they know they will be booed. They know other times they will be cheered, but they also know that they're not there for the applause of the crowd. They know they're there to render decisions in the middle of the chaos based on the book they have been given from the kingdom they have emanated from in the chaos they find themselves. The officials are very distinguishable. You will never have to guess who they are. They wear black and white jerseys. They, they would never don the jerseys of the competing teams because they do not belong to them. To be sure, they are grossly outnumbered. There are 53 players on each team. There's a coaching staff of each team. And there are thousands of fans in the stands. And just nine of them. They know that even though the players are younger, stronger, and faster, and they are older, fatter, and slower, they understand that even though the players have power, they have authority. To be sure the players can knock you down, the refs can put you out. Because they carry kingdom authority. We need to understand that you and I are God's officiating crew in a world of conflict. There is cultural conflict, racial conflict, police and citizen conflict. There is democratic and republican conflict, and the clashes never end. That is the world in which God has placed you and me. He has given each of us a book. It's all the same rule book. And God intends for all decisions on the field of play made by his officiating crew to be consistent with that book. A few years ago, the NFL officiating crew went on strike. They, send, they sent in replacement officials. There was chaos on the field because the replacement officials didn't know the book. And so they were giving their opinions rather than ruling with authority from above. Second Chronicles puts it this way. Israel had been without a true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. It says, nation destroyed nation, and city destroyed city. And notice at the end of verse 6, it doesn't say that Satan troubled them, or that their own sinfulness troubled them. It says God troubled them with every adversity. This is the typical Old Testament story where God's hand is actively engaged. The fire and brimstone, the earth opening up, the floods coming down. 
This is what we call the active wrath of God, which is different than the relationship we have with God today. You see, when God became man in the form of Jesus Christ, and when he died on the cross, our relationship changed with him. We no longer experience the active wrath of God, like seen all over the New Testament, or Old Testament, I'm sorry, but the passive wrath of God, which is seen in Romans chapter 1, verses 24, 26, and 28, where it says God gave them up to their vile passions. God gave them up to their uncleanness. God gave them up to a debased mind. That is that God gave them up to experience life without him, the passive wrath of God. Which brings me to my first point in verse 3. Israel has been without the true God. We're in the middle of conflicts, and we love the idea of, a, of the God of the Bible until it costs us something. Until it costs us our popularity, Matthew 10.22, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. It will cost, we like God until we, it costs us our money. Luke 18.25, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. We love God until it costs us our pornography, until it costs us our homosexuality, our envy, our gossip, and our pride. Matthew 7, 13-14 says, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter, in, enter through it. But for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So what do we do when we don't like what God says? Well, in our American culture, we throw them away and we get a new one, right? We make up a God in our head that doesn't condemn our sin. That's called idolatry. That is one reason why God troubled them in verse 6, because there was no true God. The second point is really what caused the first, and that is, verse 3, Israel was, out, was without a teaching priest. The pulpits were full of preachers, but they weren't saying much of anything. The pulpits are weak. If the pulpits are weak, then the members become weak. When the ref referees fail to make the right call, there's, there's chaos. What happens when we do not know our officiating, what our officiating book says? Well, how about moral division? How about redefining of the family, killing of the unborn, racial discrimination? I want everyone to take a look around. Let's take a quick look at everyone, everyone around. You may see nothing wrong, but even our church has been affected by the enmity man in our country has struggled with since its foundation for the color of a person's skin. Dr. Tony Evans said, The reason why there is a racial divide in our country it's because 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour. The reason why the country is in disarray is because the officials can't get together and make the correct call. And it is the inconsistency of preachers and believers that has led 
to a culture without the true God, resulting in what verse 3 calls the absence of law. Point three, Israel was without law. People were making up their own rules. In other words, postmodernism, where you have no absolutes except that which you call absolutely true for you. You see, there are two answers for every question. God's answer and everyone else's answer. And everyone else's answer is wrong. We cannot be wimps about this either. Matthew 10.16 says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. The teams are at war and they are not going to stop fighting. So stop worrying about being popular and start worrying about being principled. The law has a purpose. Psalm 19.7, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Romans 3.49, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Romans 3.20, Wherefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. First John 3, 4, sin is trans- transgression of the law. Romans 7, 7, I have not known sin, but by the law. Galatians 3, 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law doesn't save us. The law condemns us. It shows us our sin. It shows us our need for a Savior, which is repentance. And the only way we are saved is by by being justified by our faith in Jesus Christ dying on the cross. The law doesn't stop with the Ten Commandments either. The law is the entirety of the teachings and precepts of God in the Bible. But it can be as simple as this. Matthew 22, 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So, it's time for that last riddle. A man once broke all the Ten Commandments. He lied, he stole. He lusted, which the Bible says is to commit commit adultery in his heart. He failed to love God above above all else. He failed to honor his parents, as well as to keep the Sabbath day. He hated, which God sees as murder. He failed to honor God's name, and he also coveted which means to want other people's things. How could God, who is perfect and holy, forgive him freely? His very nature must punish transgression of his law if he is just. How can the man avoid hell and go to heaven? The answer The only way the man could avoid being found guilty on Judgment Day, when all humanity gives an account for every idle word, is to repent, turn from his sins, and put his faith in Jesus Christ. He will not do this if he doesn't see his danger. If he is deceived into thinking that God doesn't see his thought life, or that God won't punish sin, then he will carry on in his sin. More than likely, this will happen 
because he is ignorant of the fact that the Bible says the only way to enter heaven is to have clean hands and a pure heart. But if he is honest and listens to his conscience, he will see he has broken the commandments. And when all the evidence comes out on Judgment Day, he will be found guilty and end up in hell. He needs God's mercy. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the punishment for our sins, satisfying eternal justice and at the same time demonstrating God's incredible love for sinful humanity. The moment the man repents and put his, puts his faith in the Savior, God will forgive his sins and forgive him and sorry and give him the gift of everlasting life he then should read his bible daily and obey what he reads showing himself to be genuine in his faith he or she could also take talk to me about five, in about 5 minutes when i'm finally done talking and to receive more help one more challenge for the believers or should i say the officials with kingdom authority in the room A letter from an atheist, and with this I will close. Remember, this is a letter from an atheist to a Christian. You're really convinced that you've got all the answers. You've really got yourself tricked into believing that you're 100% right. Well, let me tell you just one thing. Do you consider yourself to be compassionate of other humans? If you're right, as you say you are, and you believe that, then how can you sleep at night? When you speak with me, you're speaking with someone who you believe is walking in a direction into eternal damnation, into an endless onslaught of horrendous pain which your loving God created. Yet you stand by and do nothing. If you believed one bit that thousands every day were falling into an eternal an unchangeable fate, you should be running the streets with rage at their blindness. That's equivalent to standing on the street corner watching every person that passes walk blindly directly into the path of a bus and die. That you stand by idly by and, doing no, and do nothing. You're just twiddling, twiddling your thumbs, happy in the knowledge that one day that walk signal will shine your way across the road. Think about it. Imagine the horrors hell must have in store if the Bible is true. You're just going to allow that to happen and not care about saving anyone but yourself? If you're right, then you're uncaring, unemotional, and purely selfish. You have no right to talk about subjects such as love and caring. 